Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Wasim Akhtar. My guest today is Dr. Scott Small, a physician specializing in aging and dementia and a professor of neurology at Columbia University, where he is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Today, we are going to discuss his book, Forgetting, The Benefits of Not Remembering. Scott, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Wasim. Thank you for inviting me and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Scott, let us start with this question. What drew you to the research on the topics of uh, memory, aging, Alzheimer? Uh, what drew me to that was uh, my background in uh, in. Uh, trying to understand memory, my work with Eric Kendall, who's a memory investigator. Uh, and uh, I was always interested in memory, first from a psychology point of view, the philosophy of memory is interested, interesting. But as I uh, be starting to veer into medicine, uh, the natural home base was really trying to understand what goes wrong with memory to cause pathological forgetting. How much do we know and understand about how information is stored in the brain? Uh, Scott, how does our memory work? That's the, that is the fundamental question. Uh, we know a lot, not everything. We should always be humble. But in answering a question about how a machine works, and um, I hope your audience will forgive me for describing, as at least as a first approximation, uh, the brain as an information machine, is first understanding the blueprint of the machine and then trying to understand component parts. So the blueprint of memory is generally understood. And this, by the way, is exactly how I teach memory to trainees, to students, graduate students, even neurologists. Basically, we have the perfect analogy. Our computer uh, our desktop, desktop computer or personal computer in many ways had engineers that were trying to solve how to create a memory machine, just like Mother Nature tried to decide how to create a memory machine between our ears. And in some ways at the blueprint, it's very, very simple. So if you want to store a new memory on your computer, you might type something onto your computer screen you then need to be able to move that information to, into your hard drive. You need to be able to save that information, right? So you need a hard drive and you need an ability to save. That is performed on your computer. Its operating system has a save function, the famous click save that we all use. That is what's required first and foremost and then the other operation you would need to have a successful memory machine, whether it's our own natural one or our computers, is to be able to access that information tomorrow. And for that, your operating system on your computer has an open function, the famous click open function, which allows you to then sort through all your memories and open the memory you want. And so basically, very simplistically, and that's always going to be the case when you're trying to create a blueprint, it's a simplification, our brains have a save function, and that occurs 
in an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which has become quite famous lately. We need our hippocampus to save information. We save our memories, particularly the ones that we most commonly describe as memory. There are all kinds of memories that are not necessary, are a little bit different, but we all save them more or less in cortical regions in the back of our brains, uh, right underneath the skull in the back of the brain. The ability to open that information tomorrow, more or less, requires the prefrontal cortex, which resides right behind our foreheads. So we have a safe, we have an area where we have the equivalent of a um, memory record, uh, our hard drive. We have the ability to save information to that hard drive, and we have the ability to uh, retrieve that information. And on molecular level, um, inside the brain, do we actually know how information is uh, encoded or imprinted or saved? Yes. Very, very simply, basically, as I imagine you and most of your audience knows, the brain is made up of neurons, nothing else. There's no stapling devices. There's no computer hard chips. And the fundamental property of a neuron is that they, they, they connect with each other. And the fundamental way in which we remember things is by connections across many neurons uh, that form an association. So as I met you uh, just 15 minutes ago, Wasim, I see you. There are parts, millions of neurons in my brain that encode temporarily the visual I hear your name, Wasim. That's a different part of the brain. And basically, if I meet you tomorrow and I say, great, great job, Wasim, that is only because the neurons in those two areas were able to strengthen their connection. And that is a fundamental property of the brain. And that's at the core of memory. In the book, you outline that forgetting something is not a failure of the remembering process. Forgetting is an independent feature of the brain managed by the processes that are different from the processes in the brain that manage remembering. Help us to unpack and understand this statement. Yeah, yeah, that, that is, uh, by the way, the only reason why I wrote this book. Uh, I'm not sure if it's interesting. I'm not sure. Some people have told me that it's a feel-good book because it sort of forgives our forgetting. Uh, I wouldn't have written a book like, book like that. Unfortunately, I'm too much of a hardcore scientist. The only reason I began considering writing this book is the new science of forgetting. So let me unpack what you just said. We've known for decades that the way a memory happens, if, if we said before that neurons, and you can just simplify it to two neurons, strengthen their connection, we know that there's a memory toolbox in each of our neurons, you know, molecular mechanisms, we can call them nanomachines, that when a, a memory is formed, they gradually uh, cause the neuron, neuron's tips, the synapses, to grow. And when you have the growth of those synapses, the communication between those neurons strengthened, that is memory at a, a simplified ad absurdum, but true. And so it always was thought that um, among all of us, uh, basic scientists, doctors, that 
that's what memory is. We more or less understand that. We're getting more and more clarity. But that that forgetting was just a glitch of that, was just a failure of that very mechanism of the ability to very carefully grow new, uh, to sprout new connections in the brain. And it was a nuisance or worse, it was a failure. Uh, but the, the, the real fascinating part of the new science of forgetting, normal forgetting, not the kind that causes, that's caused in disease, normal forgetting, the kind that we're all born with, that we all have, that we all complain about, is actually happens actively because of a completely separate group of nanomachines organized completely separately in their own mem uh, forgetting toolbox. So it immediately suggests, you know, mother nature doesn't gift us with things for free. Uh, she does it usually for a purpose. And so if we have a separate group of machines dedicated to forgetting, shouldn't it be beneficial? Well, <laughs> and that's why the book is not just an essay. That is usually a fair assumption, the evolutionary argument, but it, it's, it's a seductive one that can mislead us. We're all born with an appendix and it serves no function. Yes, it's true. There are different mechanisms that regulate forgetting, but might that just be a holdover from uh, some other era now that we all love memory and information? It's just a nuisance. And so what I then do, what came chapter by chapter, I rely on insight, new insight from neurology, psychology, computer science, even philosophy most ambitiously, that shows you need to um, have memory on the one hand and forgetting on the other to balance our memories, which is what allows us to live happier, uh, smarter, uh, and better lives. Scott, people usually complain about forgetting stuff and wish to have good memory. People wish to have photographic memory. You are an expert uh, in this field. Do you think that we should wish for having photographic memory? No. Next question. <laughs> and let me explain why not. And, and I say that, uh, 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 of course, uh, uh, slyly because, yes, I too, when I was a teenager and maybe even older, you know, going to medical school, the, the fantasy of having the superpower of photographic memory looms large in all of us at every stage for every profession. And it's an understandable desire. But like any superpower in any kind of movie, it turns out that it carries a dark side. And what we now know that if you have photographic memory, which actually is vanishingly rare, people sometimes say it exists. But if you had a photographic memory, you would live a miserable, lonely, uh, and uncreative life. That is now a fact. And if I might go on a little bit longer, um, What's interesting to me, and I start the book with that, is that artists, whether they're poets, uh, writers, sometimes philosophers, have always intuited brain function before us scientists. And um, the great Argentinian writer Borges uh, has a great short story uh, whose title is Funus the Memorius, Funus the Memory Magician, who is a gaucho who gets thrown from a horse, wakes up with an inflamed brain 
And suddenly he can remember everything. He can remember, he can learn, he can learn Latin. He can read, he can memorize all of Shakespeare. He remembers everything. And the first thing, the reason why it's a great story and it taps into this desire we all have, Wasim, the first thing you feel as a reader is, wow, wouldn't I love that superpower? But very quickly, and it's a short story. It didn't take Borges as a gifted writer a lot of words to explain why this is a nightmare. It is a virtual nightmare. And Funus, the memorius, once he discovered the nightmare of living with a photographic memory, uh, forced himself to live in a quiet, dark room in the back of his farmhouse and suffered until his death. You, you briefly mentioned this, but I want to stick with this concept for a few more minutes. Most people believe that forgetting serves no purpose. However, in the book, you suggest that forgetfulness is not only normal, but also beneficial. Uh, give us more on this. Yeah, and absolutely. That's what I said. You know, I needed to convince myself that this is not just some mechanism that's interesting, but it's beneficial. And, and there are many chapters, um, Wasim. In some ways, you can organize the chapters that deal with emotional memory, and those that deal with more information. I think it's the chapters that deal with emotional memory that are more intuitive to anyone, right? We say we need to forget in order to forgive. We know about PTSD, which by definition, by definition, it's a disorder where the memories, the emotional memories are burning too hot. We cannot forget and we suffer the consequences. Uh, a, a the ability to forget emotional memories is also important just to live a better social life. And that's interesting in comparing bonobos to chimps and, and people with sociopathies. So that, I think, is the easiest uh, example. The argument is on this idea of a balance between memory and forgetting, even in emotional memories. You don't want to forget the pain. You don't want to not remember not to go somewhere that's dangerous and potentially... Uh, painful, but you don't want the memory to burn so hot that it scolds your brain, that it prevents you from functioning. And so that's the balance. And again, I think most people um, intuitively uh, understand that. A quick story, if I may, which 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 captures this. Um, you know, I, I, my career is not this. My career is developing drugs for Alzheimer's for memory failures, which is different. And um, when I lecture occasionally to a general audience, I not more, not infrequently get a question from a couple therapist who says, that's great, Dr. Small, but when you develop a drug for forgetting, call me because my practice will thrive. Because any of us who've been in a long-term relationship know the baggage that needs to be let go, that is just a colloquialism for forgetting. It taps in exactly into the forgetting mechanisms that we now understand. Uh, Scott, you keep using the term normal forgetting. Uh, what is normal forgetting? What, what does the, the word normal mean here? Yeah, that's a great, great, great point. And it's a complicated word. And anytime you try to dichotomize normal versus pathological, there's a lot to be said about that. But there are simple rules of thumb that apply here. Pathological forgetting, let's start with that. What happens to us in Alzheimer's, what happens to us as we age, is by definition pathological because it's a worsening from our own um, 
baseline. If your computer, if you bought a computer 20 years ago and, it, and right off the shelf, it didn't have great memory, you wouldn't say that the computer is faulty. It's just that you didn't have a lot of memory. Normal forgetting is the forgetting we're born with, we all have naturally. It occurs in all of us, vary a little bit across that, but it's normal because it's nature given. Um, so that's a very easy rule of thumb. And like all rule of thumbs, it, it, it can get complicated, but that actually works quite well. There was an interesting debate in the research community that uh, memory loss that we experience is part of the normal aging process. Uh, this led to this view that uh, uh, perhaps Alzheimer is also part of the aging uh, process. Talk to us about the research that informs us that Alzheimer and memory loss due to aging are two separate and disassociated entities. Yes, they are. And that's a really good, interesting point that has confused us in the last couple of decades. Because after all, Alzheimer's is more likely to happen in older people. Everyone as they age, they experience some forgetting. So maybe they're one and the same. If I may use, I'm going to go back to our computer. If, if, if I showed a computer engineer or a com computer technician a computer that had faulty memory and there was one part that was broken, and then I showed uh, that same person a computer, but now a different part is broken, part of the blueprint of memory, but different parts of the machine are broken. That um, engineer would say they're different causes. That is exactly the fundamental principle in neurology. And this is where I have contributed a little bit to the research. I talked about the safe function that is the hippocampus. The hippocampus is actually a circuit that's made up of different tiny little microscopic regions, but they're different regions. We see them reliably. Turns out that Alzheimer's disease targets one part of the circuit and normal aging targets the other. They have to be different. They have to be different. And we know at the molecular level, they are different as well. So the reason why they can look alike in the early stages is again, back to the sort of circuit idea. You can dim, you can have dimming of your lights because of different parts of the circuit broken, but they're different parts. Uh, and that's why we now believe that they're separate entities. Uh, now we know uh, as you just alluded to this uh, uh, a few moments ago, we know that Alzheimer and aging target different regions of the brain. Why this particular region of our brain is more vulnerable to Alzheimer? Uh, you have identified certain trafficking pathways in the brain uh, that are impacted by Alzheimer. Uh, what are these trafficking pathways and why this particular region is vulnerable to Alzheimer? Your audience can't see, but maybe they can hear. I'm smiling. I'm smiling because that is, if there's one uh, question that has motiv motivated me for decades, that is the question. If we can figure out why one part of the brain is affected by Alzheimer's, but a neighboring part is not, the genes are similar, the environment is similar, we can potentially gain deep insight into its fundamental cause. And I smile also because we just published a paper that I think is really has really made great strides to finally clarify that. So I can give you, um, let me first talk a little bit about the trafficking system and then answer why that area 
is affected first and foremost. So trafficking is, every, every cell has a trafficking system. Think of a railway trafficking system. And uh, I gather there, this is an international audience, but think of the New York City subway map or whatever railway station you use. That, that system is dedicated to transporting passengers from one part of the system to the other. Every, each neuron in our brain has a trafficking system within it. Quite literally, that's the word we use, which traffics proteins, right, equivalent to the passengers, from one, one compartment of the neuron to the other. And that turns out to be fundamentally important for the vitality and health of a neuron because proteins need to function in a particular spot, right? So that's the trafficking system. And what is now clear is that in Alzheimer's disease, one of the first things that happen, and it seems to really be one of the dominant causes, we can now use cause. Causes, you might know, will seem a very pushy word in our medical field. We can now say that it's probably one of the dominant causes of Alzheimer's. What we see in this part of the brain where Alzheimer's starts is literally traffic jams. We use that word because the part of the machinery of the uh, trafficking system that's affected is the machinery that regulates trafficking out of the equivalent of Grand Central Station or whatever is the main station in your railway map. And so you quickly get traffic jams throughout the neuron and they cause neurons to slowly die and softly uh, slowly sicken and, 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 and softly die, just like they do in Alzheimer's disease. So it's the trafficking system that seems to be central to Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and now I can ask the question, if I haven't gone on too long, on why is this part of the brain particularly vulnerable to Alzheimer's? So um, it turns out that this part of the brain it's a tiny part of the hippocampus, is a hub in our brain. So we talked about before how all brain areas connect and communicate. It turns out that this part of the brain that's vulnerable to Alzheimer's is a hub. It's constantly receiving input information. It's constantly being stimulated, not only when we remember, but when we think. Not only when we think, but when we sleep, because when we sleep and dream, this area is getting nonstop, it's being bombarded with nonstop incoming information. Okay, that's a circuit answer to what's unique about this brain area. It's the only answer to the question about what's unique about this area. How does that factor into trafficking? Well, it turns out that every time you stimulate a neuron, you activate its internal trafficking system. So now what that means, if you just combine those two things, and I hope I didn't lose anyone, it means that this particular part of the brain where Alzheimer's begins is constantly receiving nonstop persistent stimulation. Its trafficking system is always on. And so maybe a gene can throw a wrench into this machinery, maybe things in the environment, but it turns out that it could just be bad luck. If you have a machine that's overworked and overused over time, just by bad luck alone, glitches will happen. And if glitches happen to the trafficking system, every cell, every neuron has it, 
it's going to start in, in this part of the brain. Does that make any sense? It does make a lot of sense. And it takes me nicely uh, to my next question that uh, uh, perhaps we are vulnerable to Alzheimer because we have a hyper-connected brain. Help us to unpack and understand this view that what does it mean that we humans have hyper-connected brain and why it makes us more vulnerable to Alzheimer? I love that question as well. Thank you, Wasim. Um, so it, it, let me just point out for people who don't know, we are, we are the only species who are cursed with this horrible disorder, right? And so another way to ask your question is, wh why is that? And I can tell you, if for those, some might know, some might not, that actually the, hip, the hippocampus, the hub, is identical in all mammals. All mammals have, a, have this hub. All mammals have a hub that's constantly being bombarded. If I show this hub under the microscope to even a seasoned neuroanatomist, they won't know if it comes from a human, a monkey, a mouse, and yet we are the only ones who develop this disorder. And so now I'm in speculation, but one of the most plausible reasons is not because the hub is different, but because there are less spokes. The, what distinguishes us compared to other mammalian species is not our hub and the hub-like properties, but we have many more spokes that are bombarding this hub. Um, and that's coming from the cortex. Monkeys, it's much flatter, is much let, it has uh, let much, the numbers of spokes are much less in mice even less so. So that provides one explanation for why we, mainly are the species that um, who love to live a long life deep in thought and remembrance, <laughs> that might be the price we pay, the risk we incur for developing Alzheimer's. Uh, we will come back to Alzheimer and uh, um, uh, this anomaly that happens in our brain. But I just want to ask you this question now. Can you talk about that? How actually your research is conducted? Is it conducted through brain imaging or dissecting brain or, or through the analysis of molecules? How do you conduct your research? Well, at, at this point, I'm lucky enough to direct an Alzheimer's disease research center, which means that everything you listed and more is included in the center, which means that there are many uh, incredibly talented scientists and physicians and geneticists and imagers and biomedical engineers who are part of this endeavor. But you're, you're Im implied in your question is exactly the way to solve this problem. It's what's called integrative biology. You're not gonna figure out a complicated disorder like Alzheimer's by just focusing on genes alone, and we tend to over-index genes. You're not gonna focus it on just brain imaging and mapping. You're gonna have to play three-dimensional chess. And only when all the, the levels start overlapping and clicking, can we say that we actually understand a disorder? And that's what's that's what, by the way, got us to the trafficking system, only by looking in an integrative way across all levels of analysis. And you say in your presentations that you are not focusing on one molecule or an enzyme or a receptor. You are focusing on cell biology pathways. <laughs> yes. And... Um, 
I think that's right. <laughs> of course, I'm biased to feel that. Uh, I've done that all my career and it's really made a lot of hay. But it turns out that if Alzheimer's was one of these simple disorder that's caused by a single molecule, a single gene, a single receptor, we would have figured it out by now. Alzheimer's, by definition, by, by the way, is called a complex disorder with a capital C, uh, and like cancers and things like that. And um, the uh, only way to really understand a complex disorder is by trying to uh, look at the fundamental unit that you can use to clarify your search. You could look at molecules or genes one by one, there are 20,000 of them. You can look at regions one by one, there are hundreds, and you can look at neurons one by one, there are billions of them. One way in which medicine is simplified, it's simplified into the pathways that regulate neuronal function. So just to give you real numbers, every neuron in our brain has 20,000 genes, it has probably more than that molecules, so we're talking about thousands. There are maybe a hundred pathways. They're all organized into a particular way, like the trafficking system. There are many molecules that play a role in the trafficking system, but it's a singular uh, pathway. And so many of us think that we should be thinking of pathways and not get too obsessed on the details. You can, you can get lost uh, in, the, in the forest from the trees if you don't. As you just uh, mentioned, Alzheimer, it's, it's a complex anomaly. Where does our research in terms of developing some solutions or some approaches to deal with this anomaly, are there any promising leads? You know, I can say uh, full-heartedly that there are now, and I, and I qualify that because I think personally I'm an optimist, but as a doctor and a scientist, I'm a skeptic, and I'm not inclined to optimism. And I think we sometimes delude ourselves or maybe by accident delude the world when we say five years away, five years away. I can justify why there's optimism now. Realistic optimism. The mechanics cliche here applies. If you don't know what's fundamentally broken, you're never going to find uh, a way to fix the problem. And only now, in the last 10 years, and this is a collective we across the world, using the multiple levels you described, genetics, molecular biology, cell biology, the whole thing, do are, are we now seeing clarity that we could say that we know the two or three dominant pathways in a cell that is actually fundamental in the cause of Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, COVID has very few silver linings. The one silver lining, Wasim, is that the uh, biotechnology enterprise now, writ large, is endowed with such incredible tools that give them the actual trigger, COVID, and within record time, there's reasons to believe they can find a drug. Now, obviously, this is not an infectious disease, might be different, but the same tools that are being, that, that, that are used to, that were used to find, to isolate COVID, to develop the vaccines, to develop the other drugs are now being deployed against the traffic jams in Alzheimer's disease and other pathways that are linked. And I can tell you, 
that um, companies are already working on this, and there are already drugs that seem to do this. It's 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 a you know it's not yet ready for patients, but that. Uh, mechanism of drug discovery based on true insight on the cause has already begun. Uh, what is your view on the potential effectiveness of uh, gene therapy uh, for the treatment of uh, Alzheimer? Uh, are we making any progress in that field as well? Y- yes, actually, that's a that's a that's a deep question. It's deep because. Um, gene therapy, since you're asking, I'll, I'll assume that most of your audience knows, is basically increasing the levels of a protein in areas of the brain or areas of the body. Uh, perhaps, I'm sure you know, but perhaps others know that it had a very slow start. It had a rocky start because it's not trivial to inject uh, a gene therapy uh, with and doing it safely. But now most people, not me, most Drug developers think that that they've debugged the system. You can now deliver uh, proteins to part of the, or have neurons produce more of these proteins. And in fact, it is um, one of the ways in which people are thinking of intervening with Alzheimer's. Because if we know what's wrong, we can start thinking of, well, what can I increase? One qualifier, if I may because I am very much now involved in trying to translate this all therapeutically. Uh, You and your audience should know that I'm a co-founder of a company that is based around these trafficking systems. Um, It's not necessarily full transparency. It's just the truth, because I know that the only way I can remit my promise to my patients, and if if I and others truly believe that this is the cause, only companies can do this academics, we suffer from hubris, you know that, Wasim. We think we can do everything, but we can't. But um, the idea of gene therapy is always interesting. It's going to be part of the toolbox of drugs. The problem right now with gene therapy, and my patients trust me, and I've earned that trust. If I tell them, look, I have this drug that is in clinical trials. We're not sure, but we think it's safe right now. And we think it'll make a difference. Do you want to consider? Many of them will say yes. If they don't ask me, I will tell them, uh, you should then ask me, what happens if I do develop some side effects off of of this drug? Then of course I can stop, right? That's true for a pill by mouth. (laughs) It's not currently true for gene therapy. That's one of the biggest problems for gene therapy for a disorder that's slowly progressive. You know, there are some really more um, aggressive disorders like Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, that if you have the disease, things will happen very, very rapidly. There, the, the, the calculation is different. There, a patient and a doctor might be willing to take our chances because if you don't, things are going to really go downhill very quickly. But for a disorder that it, it, its metronome is measured over five years, 10 years, you have to really have a much higher bar on safety before you start giving these drugs. And uh, the approach that your company uh, is, uh, um, is is aiming to follow, without going into too much technical details, um, are you uh, working on producing a medicine so people, when they start showing the signs of Alzheimer, they will go ahead and take those medicine, or it is um, uh, some other approach? 
It's exactly that approach. Uh, just to qualify, forgive me if I'm going to be precise here. I'm not developing it. I'm a co-founder of this company. I am very happy as a professor at Columbia. I consult for the company. Uh, and you're right that I can't say I talk freely about everything, but fundamentally, that's exactly, they already have drugs. So not to engender false optimism, never do that. Uh, we have drugs that when given to cells in a dish, they unjam the trafficking problems in neurons. When they're given to mice, good things seem to be happening. That's what's called preclinical work. It is years away before the company, not me, will be able to find a drug that's suitable for patients. But there's reason to believe that that's, that's going to happen. Uh, are there any genetic links that make certain individuals more uh, vulnerable to Alzheimer? Yes, there are um, two different kinds of genes. There's a genetic component to Alzheimer's, like there's a genetic component to almost anything, like diabetes, right, cancers. And those are good examples because there are two kinds of ways in which a gene is linked to a disorder. The first way is, is that if you get the gene, you get the disorder. It is causal and deterministic. The other way is that it affects your wrist, a little bit left or right, right? And so there are now three or four genes that are actually causal. They, if you have it, sadly, not you, but if a patient to me, comes to me and I find those genes, I can tell them that they will undoubtedly get the disorder. I can't do that with risk genes. All those genes turn out to cause traffic jams in neurons. Our lifestyles also have an impact uh, uh, on, on getting this anomaly. So, so what are the lifestyle things that can impact in uh, creating uh, such anomalies in our brains? Right. And, that, and that's the benefit, actually, of now, now that we are convinced that this pathway is central, we can begin to ask, what are the things that clinicians have found over the decades increase our risk for developing Alzheimer's? And one by one, we can ask, is it through trafficking problems? The two that have some evidence in support of, by which I mean we tested in our model systems, we're not absolutely sure. The two, actually the two that are um, that most dramatically increase our risk for developing Alzheimer's. <clears throat> One is obesity, the other is type 2 diabetes. And when we examine model systems, by which I mean mice, etc., we see that the traffic jams happen in those mice in the hippocampus. So it's an easy recommendation. I think implied in your question is, you know, genes are interesting because they can convince us that it's really causal, but until CRISPR <laughs> works through its, its issues or other technologies, we, we can't change our genes, but we can change our environment. And it's a long uh, standing recommendation from me as a clinician to anyone. The only thing you can probably do right now to, to reduce your risk is live a cardiovascularly healthy life. Uh, whether it's through the trafficking or not, might be, but there's no question obesity, type 2 diabetes, uh, uh, strokes, all significantly increase our risk for developing Alzheimer's late in life. So that is a good recommendation to make. Try to prevent that. Easier said than done sometimes. And are there other um, uh, healthy food or some 
instructions that people can follow to keep their mind uh, healthy as as we all age so when it comes to foods um a, not of course a food that it causes you diabetes i think i'm just talking about um elements of our nutrition that are bioactive. It's a whole field, it's a complicated field. I think people intuitively understand it's really hard to pin down. But I can tell you that the other half of my lab works on normal cognitive aging, what we described earlier. Not Alzheimer's, but a different part of the brain, different pathways. And for there, we're making incredible um, advances in convincing me at least that there are things that we eat that directly influence that part of the brain. Uh, and we're now trying to do this more globally, and it's turning out to be a really fascinating story. It's something called flavanols. Although uh, you are a researcher and a medical doctor, so your focus is on uh, treating patients through medical channels and through medicine, but uh, Alzheimer has huge impact on the entire family. When one person gets that, the, the, the social fabric of the family uh, 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 has a huge negative impact. Are there societal or social things that, that through your observation that you have learned that can help to manage the anomaly of Alzheimer in a family in a better way? Well, see, more than my observation, it's fundamental to my clinical practice. I, I try to spend as much time as my patients and their families need. And one might ask, well, you've already admitted, Dr. Small, that you can't really write a prescription, which is what we're taught to do. And it's because of that, that most of what I spend my time on is what we call psychosocial issues, which you alluded to. So in other words, someone in the early stages of Alzheimer's who can't save memories, who they just have forgetting, pathological forgetting, that's not going to really harm them. I mean, they might suffer mentally from that, but it's not going to harm them. But what will is locking themselves out on a cold night. What will is leaving a pot burning on the stove, forgetting to take your medications, financially mismanaging one's finances. This is all under the category of psychosocial uh, management, and it's a whole category. And it's where I think I help my patients the most, me and other social workers, by the way. So we try to minimize that from happening. And there are a lot of ways of, of doing that. Uh, and it's interesting that we now have memory aids, you know, that help us with that. The one thing I'm going to quickly add more on the sort of philosophical part is I often am surprised when my patients thank me um, because I do feel like I failed them to date. And that's why I'm working so hard on trying to help companies develop drugs and make meaningful differences. But they thank me because they have, um, they, 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 particularly people in the relatively early stages, it's incredible how many people with early stage Alzheimer's, once they get the diagnosis, they feel relieved because they've been thinking that, oh my God, I'm doing something wrong. My spouse is badgering me because I'm not paying attention. What's wrong with me? Well, it's not your fault, right? And it helps the family how to manage it instead of just trying to kind of say, stop, stop, listen, listen. 
you can you can see how it's helpful. I'm not, I, and 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 part of it is also trying to remove the stigma of Alzheimer's, which is challenging. So these are all part of what you're describing as the psychosocial way in which we try to help our patients uh, with Alzheimer's until we find a drug. <laughs> we all uh, forget stuff. We all uh, have our senior moments. Uh, at what point? Uh, we should consider that perhaps I should see a doctor. This is not uh, uh, normal forgetting. This is more than that. Uh, can you share any any signs or any any insights uh, in that regard? I can. I, I will start by saying that if I gave a rule of thumb earlier to distinguish pathological forgetting from normal forgetting, pathological is the form that you notice there's worsening from your baseline. Uh, not after a bad night's sleep, not after a Christmas party when you drank too much, but really a chronic shift. That's pathological forgetting. Um, but the only, at that point, uh, and I'm not just trying to kindle business for my colleagues in neurology, at that point I would, and I do, to anyone, family, friends, recommend that you see a doctor. Because you want to, first of all, be sure of that. Secondly, there are things that maybe can, can help. Maybe you're taking the wrong kind of sleeping meds or something. <clears throat> so definitely, I'm not going to sort that out right now. I'm just giving guidance. So I, I, I definitely think that, um, that, that it's advisable the second that you're convinced or your family that things are truly worsening and not just temporarily so to see a doctor. Now, it ties into what we said before. Some people tell me, well, I just don't want to know. Right. It's like maybe COVID testing. I just don't want to know. And there's some legitimacy. You know, they tell some people have told me, well, call me back when you have something to do about it. If you're telling me I can know, but I can't do anything about it, then it's not actionable information. And this is where my, my patients with my experience with them have taught me most of them actually want to know. It helps them a peace of mind. It helps their family how to manage it. It's relevant to end of life, you know, whether it's wills or making peace with loved ones. So it's not exactly the actionable information people want of me. Again, I'm trying to get there, but it is actionable. And most people want to know. In the book, you discuss autism as well. Uh, this book is about benefits of forgetting. Why, in your view, it was important to discuss autism in this book? Yeah, good question. And remember, we talked about how the book deals with uh, the somewhat more intuitive benefits of emotional forgetting. What autism is, in some ways, it helps understand the benefits of informational forgetting. Now, the first thing I'll say here, Wasim, as I say in the book, I understand that there's a lot of debate in the field, among families, among people with autism, that it, first of all, is it a disorder at all? There's a legitimate uh, debate about whether autism is not a disorder at all. It's just part of biodiversity. If it is a disorder, it's not a singular disorder. I'm completely respectful of that. And one of the things, if I may um, contextualize, after writing the book, I've been getting a lot of email feedback, particularly from people with autism who say, actually, you know, I appreciate your sensitivity, but it's been helpful. It's been helpful. And so every chapter of the book, I have actually a guide who helps me because a lot of these, a lot of these topics are outside of my natural home base. So I talk with Jasper Johns about creativity or Danny Kahneman about decision-making. 
um, Eric Kendall about memory. I'm lucky to have uh, famous friends. Um, the, the, the chapter on autism was particularly important that I work with a leading autism uh, investigator, and this is Dan Geshwin at UCLA. And so um, the really interesting thing about autism, and this book forced me to do a lot of reading. I, I hope I convince your listeners that I, I, I write only when I feel like I'm scholarly up to snuff. I did a lot of reading for the autism chapter, for most of the chapters actually. And if you go back to um, the original descriptions of autism by uh, Connor, Connor was a pediatric psychiatrist at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. He published two back-to-back -back papers that were seminal and described autism for the first time in the 1950s. The Second one is basically in the title is the difficulties of seeing the whole from the parts. And the idea that autism, people with autism across the spectrum, and we're all on a spectrum, uh, tend to perseverate on the details over the whole. And the, the idea of seeing the forest from the trees. And so an example of one of his patients who were all kids, one kid who was just wonderful and would, you know, and, and yet whenever, um, whenever his parents just changed the, um, transposed in the home library, one book from another in a massive library, the, the child who was wonderful and smart became extremely agitated and anxious. You know, you and most people would walk through, walk in, into a library and not even notice if anything is different. They notice another uh, wonderful description that Canner provided as of a child who would sing. They were from uh, Montreal, I think, originally. So he would sing French tunes with his mother as going, going to, to, to kindergarten. And anytime the mother tried to take a different way to kindergarten because there was an accident or something, the kid would just have a meltdown and suffered and the mother did. And so these are all examples that uh, suggest something. It's hard to say something too general about autism because of what I said earlier, but it does seem to be inherent in the autistic experience that um, any shift from things that are routine and the same over and over again uh, induces anxiety in them. In the book, I, I, I give an example of trying to imagine what that would feel like. So I live in New York, and one New Year's Eve, I decided to go to Times Square, right? The famous big, big event, thousands of people, lots of noise, lots of noises, cacophony, really exciting, except that after a while, all that unabating novelty becomes anxiety provoking. And I felt such relief going back to my small apartment in, 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 in Manhattan that was dimly lit, that was quiet. And it, I think, gives a sense of what a life where you can't turn off that unabating novelty might be like. So it was a very interesting chapter, and I wrote it quite um, carefully and, and, and subtly because of the worries of stigmatizing 
In the book, there is a chapter on creativity. Now, this is a topic that is close to my heart. So share with us some insights that you gained when you wrote this chapter for this book uh, on the creativity from the perspective of a scientist who look at the functioning and working of brain. Yeah, and and you're right to say creativity is is a big word, and but yet, and this is now a psychologist. I studied psychology in undergrad, but not my work by far. Psychologists have tried to come up, have tried to pin down the term, and it makes sense to me, and it and it taps into what is a recurring theme in the book. Was even just in case we didn't emphasize, the book is not saying that memory bad is bad or forgetting is bad. It's saying that we need memory balanced with mem with. We need memory balance with forgetting to live a balanced life. And creativity illustrates that beautifully, according to the psychologists uh, and even uh, neuroscientists, because it taps into sleep. But basically, some people would, would think maybe, well, creativity is just this, you know, eureka moment, something out of the blue, and it's not. What creativity really is, um, is the... It requires two things. It requires both memory and forgetting. If you look over the testimonials of what society considers the most creative people, artists, scientists, anyone who's more or less creative, they first tap into their memory. They immerse their minds with information, whether it's visual information for a visual artist, words for a poet, and they create associations but then the forgetting steps in because it turns out that if you stapled those associations with steel, there would be no playfulness for sudden uh, eureka moments. That is the eureka moment. It's alchemy. It's the alchemy that occurs by having a mind that's loose and playful because of forgetting to allow unexpected associations. That's the eureka of creativity. And that's where you need your forgetting. And in fact, we all know people who have incredible memories, who we might describe as having a concrete mind. A concrete mind is a mind without forgetting. You need to stay loose, fluid, and playful. That requires your forgetting. And as you said a few moments ago, in different chapters in the book, you use different researchers as guides and you discuss their research to inform the reader. I find this approach very interesting. Well, that's interesting. It allows me to acknowledge my fabulous editor at Crown Random House. And uh, I think I'm considered a good communicator on science. And I figured I'd write a kind of scientific American kind of book. And, and, and I, but I also read a lot and I know that the best books, whether it's Oliver Sacks or, 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 uh, or Stephen Gould or many others, they use what's called narrative nonfiction. They tell the science through a story. And I was convinced of that because I know those are the best books. I certainly can reach Oliver's status, but that was my model. And um, once I decided on that, then it became easier. And I think, I think it really worked. I mean, I, like I said, I'm, I was lucky enough to have enough um, acquaintances and friends of people who are true experts in their field, uh, you know, so I could talk with Jasper Johns, uh, de Kooning, he had dementia, how did it affect his creativity, uh, decision-making and, and, and forgetting. Uh, the ability to forgive and forget with Eric Kandel, who uh, 
grew up as a young child in Nazi Austria, and he's forgiven, right? And so it 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 it, it really did work. And then I also. The hardest chapter for me emotionally was being convinced that I should use my own experience uh, on talking about PTSD. So I, I do think that works. Uh, Scott, we are discussing your book, Forgetting the Benefits of Not Remembering. We have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in the book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. Is there anything else that, uh, uh, that you would like to add uh, to this conversation? Well, since it's been a very wonderful conversation, Wasim, I'm not just being polite. Um, one of the chapters that was most ambitious, it's the last chapter, is how uh, you need to balance your memory and forgetting for communal memories and how it is beneficial for society. My editor, Jillian, thought that was ambitious, but I think even th she thought uh, it, it worked. Uh, I, there I had to read philosophers, which I like reading, but I've never written about. So that seemed to be very interesting to me. And I think, if I may, uh, it turns out to be very relevant to our polarized world, our socially polarized world, our politically polarized world. Basically, um, it, anyone who's a xenophobe uh, is suffering from too little forgetting. And the book forced me to not disparage them, but to be compassionate because they live in a world of uh, dread and trembling. Dr. Scott Small, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Wasim. Thank you and goodbye. Bye-bye.